This episode is part one of two with author and principal John Marsden. In part one, we'll be chatting to John about schools. We'll be chatting about his educational philosophies, his schools, Candlebark and Alice Miller, and what to look for as a parent when you're going to look for a school for your child. Welcome to Raising Wildlings, a podcast about parenting, alternative education, and stepping into the wilderness, however that looks, with your family. Each week, we'll be interviewing experts that truly inspire us to answer your parenting and education questions. We'll also be sharing stories from some incredible families that took the leap and are taking the road less travelled. We're your hosts, Vicky and Nikki from Wildlings Forest School. Pop in your headphones, settle in, and join us on this next adventure. Hello and welcome to the Raising Wildlings podcast. I'm your host, Nikki Farrell. This episode of the Raising Wildlings podcast is sponsored by our friends at the Fun Fables podcast. Fun Fables is a great little podcast for kids with stories like the Three Little Pigs, Jack and the Beanstalk and the Gingerbread Man retold in a fun and entertaining way. Just search for Fun Fables, stories for kids on your favourite podcast app or you can click the link in the show description. So over the past two months, we have had the most amazing feedback on the impact that our little show is having on your family and getting them outside in nature. And we just wanted to remind you that we have some little downloadable gifts for you on the website to help change the way that we speak to children and to help us spend more time outdoors. Our latest offering is a guide on what to say instead of be careful when your children are engaged in risky play. So to grab your copy, just head to wildlingsforestschool.com forward slash free dash downloadables. Today we're chatting with author and principal John Marsden. John has written more than 40 books, including the Tomorrow When the War Began series, So Much to Tell You, and his most recent work, which we'll be chatting about today, The Art of Growing Up. He has sold over 5 million books worldwide and has won every major award in Australia for young people's fiction. John's passionate interest in education led him to start two schools, Candlebark and Alice Miller, on forested properties in the Macedon Ranges in Victoria. The two schools enrol around about 400 students in 2020. Now, if you're around our vintage, it's likely you grew up reading John's books through your teenage years. And if you're an English teacher like me, it's likely you've taught his work to your own students. John's most recent work, The Art of Growing Up, is not aimed at teenagers, but rather is aimed at parents. In this astonishing, insightful and ambitious manifesto, John pulls together all that he's learned from over 40 years experience working with and writing for young people. He shares his insights into everything from the role of schools and the importance of education to problem parents and problem children and the conundrum of what it means to grow up and be quote unquote happy in the 21st century. And we're lucky enough to have John joining us now. Hi, John. As I'm, I'm one of the generation that inhaled your novels, as I'm sure just about everyone that interviews you now is. And, I, and I've loved teaching your fiction as an English teacher, but your newest work, The Art of Growing Up, it's a different beast and I loved it. It felt a bit like activism to me. It felt urgent. Can you tell us a little bit about why you think uh, Australian parents need to hear some of what you've got to say? Well, it comes from, I don't know, 40 years of teaching. And <laughs> in that time, you do have a lot of experiences and a lot of interactions. Mm-hmm. And you soon work out what's effective and what isn't effective and what's working and what isn't working. And basically, what's, what's good and what's bad, to use old-fashioned words. And yeah. It did baffle me as to how schools could 
not notice that the same practices year after year after year resulted in alienation, in disappointment, mm. in anger, and in despair sometimes. And mm. there seemed to be a lack of any real creative, strategic attempts to change things that weren't working, to fix things that were wrong. And as mm -hmm. I went around schools later as a writer in residence, and I went to somewhere around 3,000 schools, close to 3,000 schools, mostly in Australia, but overseas as well. And it was a lot. <laughs> and I worked, That's a lot. I worked hard. And uh, sometimes I'd only be in a school for half a day, but sometimes I'd be there for, mm -hmm. I think, six weeks was quite a common ah. long period in a school. And mm. in all that time, out of nearly 3,000 schools, I'd say that I saw, gosh, a dozen that were wonderful, brilliant, stunningly successful, perhaps three to 600 that were awful, that were grim, dismal, <laughs> dreadful places. And the rest, I'd say, were mediocre. They were kind of, you know, not too bad. They were tolerable. But mm. there was not much there that was really inspiring and invigorating and energising and engaging. And I just got more and more mystified by how it was that this, these numbers broke down the way they did. Because I figured... Mm. Yeah, they're not very good stats, are they? <laughs> they're all. But I think they're realistic. I don't think I'm being subjective or biased in what I'm saying. But the... Uh, it seemed to me that if you took all the things that you saw that worked and put them into one school and you didn't use any of the things that didn't work in that school, you might have a pretty good school. And so that's <laughs> what I set out to do ultimately. I, I um, put my money where my mouth was. I was actually writing an article mm. for the Age newspaper in Melbourne mm. it's called The Perfect School or something. They want a long article and they were paying a dollar a word and <laughs> patting it out. <laughs> oh, yeah, I got about two-thirds of the way through and thought, gee, what am I going to say next? <laughs> and I wrote a sentence which was, next year I'm starting my own school. I and thought, you know, am I going to let this go through or not? Because mm. sure, I'm going to earn six or eight dollars from that sentence. <laughs> <But> <laughs> I'm going to condemn myself to a pretty tough uh, period of time ahead. And if it doesn't yeah. come off, then I'll look stupid. So mm. I sat there for quite a while and I was aware that I was ageing, uh, <laughs> which we all are, and I thought if I don't do it now, I'll never do it and I'll get to 65, 70 mm. and I'll really regret that I didn't do it. I'll look back with great um, disappointment and I thought, oh, oh, great, I've got to do it. And so I let the sentence stand and I continued the article describing what kind of school mm. I wanted to launch and then mm. I was committed. Once that was in print, then uh, I was locked in. So how long did it take from publishing that article to having Candlebark up and running? About a year, roughly. No, <sighs> not that long. Because what No, that's not long in starting a school. Yeah. The people I know here in Queensland that are in the thick of it right now, they're at year two and they are still a long way to go. But one of the things that influenced me strongly was a writing conference or a, a writer's um, festival organised by mm. Agnes Neuenhausen, who was a well-known Melbourne reviewer, and mm -hmm. I went to her during the conference, which ran for like three days, and she had writers from overseas who had been flown in for this. And I said to her, who was on your committee? And she looked at me with some uh, contempt and said, I don't do committees. And I said, <laughs> what do you mean? And she said, I did it myself. <laughs> and I was just completely gobsmacked. Uh, no. But she said, you know, if you do it yourself, you do it faster and you do it just mm -hmm. efficiently or inefficiently as a committee. So why bother <laughs> with committees? 
And that was very much in my mind when I set out to start the school because I'd seen people try mm. to groups to start schools and it often would bog down and end in acrimony because they were mm. arguing about whether they should be wearing purple socks or yellow socks. Yeah, yeah, they'd argue about whether they should be teaching Spanish or Indonesian or whether they should have <laughs> sport on Tuesdays or Thursdays or not at all. And they were just end up going nowhere. And I think one of the things I've learned mm. in life is that committees generally come up with mediocrity because mm. they try to achieve consensus and to do that they compromise and so ultimately they end up with something which is mediocre because any really flamboyant or outlandish or outstanding or passionate idea just gets lost in the debate and discussion and, and arguments. The fact is that most parent-run schools don't last. They survive for two or three years and then they implode because of power struggles and fights between the parents who are running it. There's Preston and Melbourne, which has survived for, I don't know, 40, 50 years as a parent-run school, but that's a rare exception and they've had some real struggles at times. But I figured that as an individual, yes, I would make mistakes, but who's to say at the end of the process whether I would have made more mistakes than a committee, I would have, whether I've made more mistakes than a committee would have, or whether I've made fewer mistakes or about the same number? Who knows? We can't really do that. We have to judge schools by other criteria. Yeah, unfortunately and unfortunately. So tell us a little bit now. You've got Candlebark and you've got Alice Miller. Candlebark set on, correct me if I'm wrong here, 850 acres? Oh, more than that, no. <laughs> more than that. <laughs> Oh, no, it's oh. about 1,200 acres here. 1,200. Oh, that's incredible. And it's in the Macedon Ranges. Yeah. Tell us about the importance of the setting in regards to your educational philosophies and how Candlebark and Alice Miller are different to tr- traditional schools. Well, the setting is great, yeah. It's beautiful. It's a mm. native forest. It's uh, never been logged or farmed, so it's the original Indigenous vegetation, for want of a better phrase, and that's terrific. But that's not the only... Like, it doesn't mean you have to have that to start a school. No. You can start a school yeah. in a city. You can start a, a great school anywhere. You can do it mm. in a barn or a garage or a shed, <laughs> although the government might have something to say about that. <laughs> but, um, as long as you give children the opportunity to engage with the natural world, it won't always be under optimal mm. circumstances. So it might be that you're in a park down the road every day for a couple of hours or an hour or so. It might be that you're going to camp on a farm out of the city area from time to time. But, um, yeah, it certainly is nice for us to have this daily interaction with the environment. And I suppose Mm. one of the things that it does that you do notice when you drive into the school is the kids roam quite widely and they are adventurous and they are creative and they are playful. And wisely, as it said, that play is children's work because they do take it very seriously and they engage with it with absolute commitment and that may include quarrels from time to time sure but so much of it is flexibility creativity imagination and improvising to match the circumstances and the conditions so if someone Mm. is um i don't know scared of spiders then they'll move the whole site of the area where they're playing to somewhere else or if someone is um feeling cold then they'll stop the game for five minutes while that person races off and gets a jumper. So mm-hmm. they have this kind of um, adaptability. And as soon as an adult comes into the picture, 
and starts regulating the play and controlling it and laying down the rules and the conditions and the limits, then mm. all of that is lost. You have a very artificial and um, I think a very unhelpful situation. Mm. Uh, we, yeah, we see it all the time with the it's stick play. So we allow stick play in our programs, but as soon as an adult steps into stick play, yep. no good. Yeah, <laughs> kids get occasional grazes on the knuckles or a poke in the shoulder or something, but they all survive it. We've never had any serious injury in 15 years. No. Which we call them learning experiences, learning injuries. I call them every scar is a story and uh, mm, yeah, like they're that. scarred and there's a story behind it and people will be interested to know the story, to hear the story. But <laughs> it's, um, there's a car, there was a car to, an article, sorry, in a London newspaper years ago, and I wish I could remember the details, but it was a bomb site in Liverpool, I think, where children have been playing happily for some years in among the ruins of the buildings and the craters and hillocks. And the council decided that because the kids loved it so much, they would turn it into a playground. And the story in the paper was of some kids who were watching the activity through a hole in the fence where they could see the bulldozers and the graders hard at work. And one kid said to another, you know, what are they doing? And the other one said, and this is where I'm going to wreck the story because I can't remember what the other kids said, <laughs> but it was something very poetic and very poignant to the mm. effect that they are destroying our, our treasure mm. island in order to give us a, a playground which was going to be concrete and plastic. Mm. I thought that's very typical of the way bureaucrats operate, <laughs> that they yeah. that everything, even playgrounds, have to be regulated, controlled and very strictly mm. governed. Our local council here chops off the limb, the low-lying limbs so children can't climb on them. That's, I think every Tasmanian school is compulsory to chop off all lower limbs now on trees so that no child in Tasmania can climb a tree in the school grounds. The statistic here, I think it was Planet Ark, um, so I don't know where they got their info from, but it was one in four Australian children haven't climbed a tree. Yeah. yeah. In Australia, you think, yeah, well, you know, we're not a... You know, we're not a hugely metropolitan country. So what's going on? It's this whole thing, and this is going back to your school. Your school motto is, you know, part of it is take risks. Can you expand on that a little bit for us? Yeah, that pretty much is the school motto. I added take care as a token gesture, but that was after some years. I thought oh, I better throw that in. <laughs> so it is. Hang on, let me clarify. Take risk, take care. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a that's pretty good balance. You don't have to tell people to take care because they do it instinctively anyway. It's like they do. It's like when a kid's halfway up a tree and you yell out, don't fall. Yeah. You go, oh, I was just about to. Thank you so much. For, yeah. uh, oh, yes, Thanks. Hadn't been thinking about that at all. <laughs> oh, gosh. So what it means is to be adventurous, really. It doesn't mean be reckless. It doesn't mean be negligent. It doesn't mean mm. show no consideration for yourself or anyone else. It means to have adventures and to get out there and, and go for it because the one of the building blocks of our lives, one of the foundation stones for our lives is first-hand experiences. And mm. if you have a childhood and adolescence which is lacking in first-hand experiences, you might as well say that you're, in fact, I'll choose a concrete metaphor, concrete simile, you might as well say your life's built on tissue paper. just happened to be there. But um, <laughs> that's the foundations of your life are really weak, really mm. flimsy. And so when yeah. you hit crises, as you will from time to time, and when obstacles come along and when difficulties occur, then there's every chance that everything will collapse underneath you and you'll be helpless, mm. you'll be despairing, you may be depressed, you may be panic-stricken, you may be 
and mm. anxious and fearful because you don't have the resilience, the inner strength that comes only from having first-hand experiences. And so mm. we practice that gospel as much as we preach it, and that's a big statement because we preach it. Yeah. So. How so? Well, the average child here would have, I guess, maybe 30 nights a year either on a camp or at school mm. at a sleepover, and that starts in prep. So in the first mm. term of prep, we take the kids away for four days and we go about two hours to different places, but most commonly to Bright, which is north of here. Oh, I love Bright. Yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful. Oh, especially this time of year, yeah, magic. Yeah. The snow mm. starting to fall and it gets very, yeah. But, mm. So we put up tents, we go to a camping ground and we stay there for four nights, uh, sorry, three nights and four days. And, yeah, occasionally a kid gets homesick, but it's just as likely mm. to be a grade six child as a prep child. Yeah. You take all the primary school kids to that particular camp. The people who get most stressed about it are the parents. I was just going to say, how do the parents go with yeah, that? They get anxious. Some of them, yeah. all of them, by any means. Some of them love it. Some of them are absolutely <laughs> Clapping the bus as it goes. <laughs> not unknown for them to book themselves into a spa or something for a couple of nights and uh, take full advantage. Thanks, John. Here's your tip for taking my kids for the week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'd think I'd get a box of chocolates or a bottle of wine occasionally. Surely. <laughs> but they do. I do feel worried when parents say to me at the interview before we enrol their children, they say things like, our child has never spent a night away from us. And I say, mm. well, but you mean they haven't stayed with their grandparents or their aunt and uncle or their friend from mm. childcare or kindergarten? And they say, no, they've, we've never had a night apart. And I think, gee, yeah. for five years you've lived like that. I think mm. are the parents recognising that they must have a life of their own, that that is vital mm. in the whole family dynamic? And mm. parents who don't do that are actually having a, there's a counterproductive um, impact from that, which is not helpful yeah, to the child's development. Not helpful. I find that as mothers, that, that martyrdom, that, you know, that we sacrifice everything sometimes for the good of, we think it's the good of the children, but in fact we're teaching them to be martyrs themselves and no one can be a martyr, no one can live up to that standard, so we're setting them up to fail already. But it's quite a new phenomenon and I think it's come about partly because mm. of the so-called nuclear family where people are having smaller numbers of children and mm. the ended family is likely to be physically more distant. So it may be mm -hmm. that the grandmother lives in Perth and the grandfather lives in Brisbane and the uncle lives in Alice Springs. So there's, a, there's that physical problem right away. And so people mm. often live in a house, in a street or in a flat, in a block of flats where they don't even know the names of the neighbours and they'll no. come home perhaps with the child after school drive into the garage, the door yeah. shuts probably automatically, yes. They disappear yeah. into the house. They're not seen again until 8 o'clock the next morning when they drive out again. Mm. It's just... That hurry to the mailbox with the heads heads down so that you can't make eye contact with anybody. <laughs> yeah, the wheelie bin out is the big adventure of the week. Yeah. <laughs> you feel like they want to put a balaclava on too. So it's, you know, <laughs> yeah. don't, don't yeah. make me talk to you. Yeah. yeah, and it's very much like that. So the sense of community, mm. the idea of living in a village, which doesn't have to be a village physically, a cul-de-sac mm. can be a village, a suburban street can be a village. Any community mm. can be a village. It doesn't matter what the physical kind of tangible uh, style of living is. But you do need an extended community to be involved 
in the child's life and to be involved mm-hmm. in looking after the child and educating the child in different ways, as happened in many societies. But that's disappeared very rapidly in our society in the last generation or so. And I think that's one of the factors in this new idea of the parent being the martyr who gives up everything and uh, mm. including their own lifestyle, their own lives. And, and their own mental health too. I would, I would add to that, seeing what I've seen now as a mother and, and amongst friends and people that I know. Mm. We, um, speaking of that community, we um, try to host a neighbourhood party here in our street. We're on a dirt road and a cul-de-sac, so there's not a lot of us, but the questions I got, why would you do that? Why would you put yourself at risk like that? Risk of what? It's, you know, you only get the people that are really sociable and, and able to mingle in social circles anyway, realistically. Yeah, and one of the toxic things that's happened in the last generation is this idea of the monster who's stalking the yes. streets, the depraved yes. beast who's going to snatch any child who's, who they can see, mm. where the stats tell us that that's a highly unlikely event. It does happen occasionally mm. and it's a tragedy when it does happen. There's no yeah. question about that. But it's so rare that it's not something we can sensibly protect against. No. recognise that it's rarer than lightning strikes and other mm. unusual phenomena. So we can't let it govern our lives and control us. I know. We're afraid of the big white van when we should really be afraid of uh, what's in our house in, in regards to that's, sexual assaults and whatnot. Absolutely. That's what mm. the stats tell us time and time again. We live mm. on a, in a country town in a pretty quiet street and with six boys in the house, we go out and play cricket in the street quite often and a couple of the neighbours' mm-hmm. kids drift in and uh, we end up with maybe 10 or 12 kids playing cricket. And what does interest me is the response of drivers as they come down the street. <laughs> and I'd say about one in three or maybe one in four on a good day will either abuse us or frown uh. at us and look very angry. And when I say abuse, I'm using the word loosely because they might say, yeah, you know, you shouldn't be on the road, it's dangerous. So that's not abuse, <laughs> but it's still a very negative and completely ridiculous. Yeah, how old are your boys? Oh, they well, we've been doing this for a long time. So we started when they were, yeah. I suppose the youngest one would have been five or six, the oldest <laughs> one is 16. But it's you can see cars coming for like 400 metres away. So yeah. we always say, ah, oh, car coming, and everyone gets off the road, and we use the wheelie bins for wickets, so they get off the roads <laughs> and the car goes through. We have one lady who abused us regularly, and I noticed one day as she drove on, she chucked a cigarette butt out the window, and I thought, well, not very well for her to take the rightness position of abusing us to playing cricket in the street, but gee, rather yeah, play cricket in the street than chuck cigarette butts around. But anyway, yeah. back to what we were saying. Sorry, as well as the um, camps, we have sleepovers at school all the time, which might be mm-hmm. for the whole of the grade three or the whole of the year tens. It might be for kids who want to have a night of reading. So it's open mm-hmm. to anyone and we might get 30 kids who bring their favourite book in and uh, <laughs> just lie around and sit around reading until we finally insist that the lights have to go out. Um, and we have other ones which are like for a bushwalk or it might be where they play murder in the dark or uh, spotlight mm. and or a game that we invented called bunkhouse breakout and they're just crazy <laughs> games where people scream and chase each other and tag each other and so on that's just mm. fun so sometimes they're educational we might have a one for a year 12 um, philosophy class where they catch mm-hmm. up with some work they've missed or they do a bit of extra learning so they can be quite mm-hmm. serious but they can be anything and everything 
and we actually mm-hmm. pay the staff quite a generous amount of money to have overnight stays. So they get 200 bucks a night for any overnight mm. uh, thing that they have at the school. Can I just say thank you as a teacher for actually valuing yeah. teachers' time outside of school hours? Well, we didn't do it for some years and then uh, it just mm. struck me one day that, gee, we ought to recognise that people are giving up lots of other activities to do these things. And it mm. didn't mean that we got more people doing them but it just was a way of no. acknowledging that they do them. So, um, mm. yeah, and we have bike camps, we have hikes, we have uh, ski trips, we have canoe trips, and we organise them all ourselves so it's not expensive. We're thrifty in the way we, we do them. We don't hire a travel agency or anything like that, and mm-hmm. we do use tents a lot, and if we go skiing, it's more likely to be cross-country skiing, which is much mm. cheaper than downhill skiing. Not a lot of either in Queensland, of course. water skiing it's all part of that strong belief that first-hand experiences are essential that they will build Mm -hmm. up resilience and inner strength and strength of character by doing those things and we sure noticed the difference when we opened the secondary campus and we took in kids from other schools as well as from our own school we noticed a profound difference between the kids who'd been through this program in primary school and the mm-hmm. kids who hadn't. And the kids who hadn't mm-hmm. were quite likely to lock themselves in the toilet and call their mother on their mobile phones if they'd lost their textbook. Mm-hmm. Whereas the kids who'd been through Candlebark would just go and say to someone, anyone seen my science book? Or they'd ask, <laughs> ask a teacher, you know, can I just uh, have a look in the classroom, see if I've left my book there? And they just coped, they managed so interesting. What, what would you say if you could change, and, you know, I'm sure you've got a list of about a 1,000 things. If you could change one thing, let's give you three, what would you change about the traditional school system? I'd hire teachers who had not gone straight from school to university and back to oh. school because I think that's very unhelpful for a really um, for the role of adult in the community of children and adults. You need people with life experience. You need people who've got a sense of perspective and a sense of Mm. proportion. You need people who don't crumble too easily. And you need people who have a range of interests and preferably passionate interests in something. I don't care what it is. It could be the Collingwood Football Club, God help us. It could be in um, hiking. It could be in stamp collecting. It could be in operas. I don't mind as long as they have interests in life that are beyond the school walls. So that's one thing I'd do. The second thing would be to provide space for young people because I think mm-hmm. of all the countries in the world, there is one which has no excuse for not giving people oh. space and that is the one we're in right now. Yep. The early childcare centres here, I think there's um, one, one to seven square metres per child. I'm like, what are they, free-range chickens? Well, Look how much space we've got. Yeah, you walk into them and even the smell is kind of, overpowering because everything is so Mm. cloistered and so uh, claustrophobic. And Mm. it seems unforgivable to me that we have these golf courses, which are perhaps 60 or 50 (laughs) acres, on expensive suburban and urban land where Mm. a dozen old white blokes like me, they're kind of (laughs) waddling around playing golf, using their buggies, of course, because they couldn't walk. And uh, down the road, there might be 600 kids squashed into a space the size of a couple of basketball courts and that's all they've got Mm. for their recreation. And interestingly, those schools have more injuries than we do by a huge margin because kids crash into each other. 
and they get oh, they're, and they're bored. They're pushing themselves. They're looking for things to do. But now schools try to counter that by introducing rules like no climbing trees, no touching, mm-hmm. no picking up sticks. If you pick up a twig, you're in big trouble. No running. Oh, yeah. All of these are common rules now in Australian schools, and to me, that's mm-hmm. our shame as a country that we have rules mm-hmm. like that in schools because it just shows that we've got an unworkable setting, an unworkable situation, and we need to do something creative about it rather than bringing mm. these these bureaucratic restrictions. There's at least one new school in England which has no recess or lunchtime. The day oh, finishes what? early, so they start at 9am or whatever and finish at 2.30 or something because they That's argue that rather than have them have their break at school, they can have that later when they go home. So they just mm. arrive at school, they're in the classroom for the full five or six hours, whatever it is, and then mm. they're released again. And I think, again, that's a incredibly negative solution to a problem. It's not a solution to a problem. Mm. It's an incredibly yeah. negative way of dealing with a problem rather than coming up with creative and, and solutions, and not just creative solutions, but solutions that are helpful, solutions that actually mm. aid the healthy growth of young people. Because what I care about is... For example, the fact that our jails are so full of damaged people. And I know from doing workshops in lots of prisons that no matter what horrific crimes people commit and no matter how much they need to be kept in a secure place where they can't repeat those crimes, those places can still be places that are caring and which which show some real determination to help people who have been damaged through no fault of their own in their childhood Mm. and adolescence because healthy, well-balanced, emotionally well people do not commit serious crimes. They don't commit too many crimes at all. They might talk Mm. on the phone as they're driving, which is not good, but um, they don't commit armed robberies or rapes. That's that old saying, hurt people hurt people, isn't it? And and this really resonated with me in, in the art of growing up was the whole... You know, it's it comes down to parenting. You've picked it a good good topic to ruffle feathers, and I mean that in the best way. And thank you for your work in doing this because we tiptoe around parents, mm. but really, you know, we parents are the people that raise the children. So who else who else is to blame? <laughs> yeah, there's an attitude in Western society which is similar to the attitude that men have held towards women in so many cultures for so many thousands of years, which is yes. women are the possession of the men. Yes. They are owned by the men. And we mm. are working on that and we're making some progress, but we still have that attitude towards children, that we own the children. Mm-hmm. They're our property and we can mould them and shape them in any way we want. So if we want to mm. have them believe in some peculiar religion, which, I don't know, worships uh, avocados <laughs> or something, and um, we feel that that's the right of the parents, that they can do that. Not only that, mm. we feel that the children can be kept in ignorance if the parents insist on it. So if mm. wants to run a course in cyber education, the use of computers and technology, or if they run a, want to mm. run a course in sex education or drug education or in suicide prevention, and if parents object, then parents are generally given the right to withdraw their children from the courses, mm. which means the children are kept in ignorance because the parents believing that they own the children and have the right to determine what goes into their heads is uh, we feel that that right is paramount, but it's not. Mm. The children have rights too and they have the right to be made aware and to be educated yeah. and taught and to acquire knowledge and even understanding and insight. 
So we're going to end the first part of this conversation with John here and bring you the second instalment next week where we focus on children and how our society idealizes and sexualizes children and how this damages them. We will be covering how we set teenagers up to fail when we make adulthood seem so hard and unappealing. And we'll be talking about the concept of teenagers having to metaphorically kill their parents in order to grow up. It is definitely an interesting conversation. If you've loved this episode, make sure you subscribe to the Raising Wildlings podcast on your podcast platform of choice and share your aha moments with us on social media. I could have talked with John for hours, weeks, months. So tune in next week as we continue the conversation. As always, we love doing this adventure with you. So until next week, stay wild. Thank you.